picking up on that illustration that I used for the children's sermon, I want to talk today about our Old Testament lesson. The two miracles take place, the birth of a son to the Shunammite woman, as well as the resurrection of the son who passed away just a few years later. And so in this text, first, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 to 37, I want to uh, organize our time this morning around three main ideas. First is generosity, the source of God's provision, and this ties in to our epistle reading as well, you'll see. And uh, secondly, life as the reward for uh, faithful service. And then finally, death as the backdrop for God's uh, resurrection life. So first, let's look at generosity, the source of God's provision. So the story begins with Elisha arriving one day in the village of Shunem, which is in the northern kingdom of Israel to the west of the Jordan River. In this village, there lived a wealthy woman, we're told, of some means, who urged Elisha to come to her house to eat. We find out a few verses later that Elisha regularly traveled through Shunem, and the woman recognized that he was a holy man of God who needed a place to stay. She's referred to as a wealthy woman, interestingly enough. The word rendered here as wealthy is Gadol in the Hebrew, and it means great or prominent. This is a woman who not only has means, but also has status and is a person of prominence in her town. And she's not described merely as a wife of a wealthy man, but seems to be wealthy in her own right. This flies in the face of the claim that the Bible is hopelessly patriarchal, where women are seen as merely the subjects or the property of their husbands. It's this woman, after all, who takes the uh, initiative to open up her home to Elisha. It's she that will propose to her husband that they should put an addition on their home for Elisha to stay whenever he passed through town. Given these clues in the text, this woman fits the description of a house manager that we see in Proverbs 31. In Proverbs 31.11, for example, it says, Her husband's heart has trusted her, and he will have no lack of gain. This household is blessed financially, and the woman's husband seems to have full confidence in her judgment as she goes to him with her plans for building an apartment for this holy man, Elisha. In verse 20 of Proverbs 31, the woman is described as opening her hand to the poor and reaching out her hands to the needy. Proverbs 31:27 it says that she watches over her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This Shunammite woman, though wealthy, does not lie around on couches entertaining herself, reclining like the 
cows of Bashan that the prophet Ezekiel speaks against. She sees Elisha passing through from time to time. She knows he is a prophet of God, and she doesn't turn her back and get on with her business, but instead opens her home to him. She's a good steward of the wealth that God has entrusted to her and uses God's blessing of her household to bless the prophet by providing him with food and a place of rest without any expectation of personal gain. We see here that God provides for his servant Elisha's needs through the generosity of his people in Israel. And the same was true in our epistle reading uh, this morning from Timothy, which admonishes us to, for those who have wealth, to use it to be rich in good deeds. And the same is true today. As Christ is the head of the body, the church, we're called to be the hands and feet of Christ, extending mercy to those in need and supporting those who spread the good news of Christ to the world. God often is pleased to provide for the needy through the generosity of his people. Second, we see life. The reward of gracious service. In verse 11, Elisha is traveling through Shunem one day and turns aside to the apartment that has been made for him to rest. And as he's resting there, he turns to his servant Gehazi and asks him to get the Shunammite woman. He asks her what she would like Elisha to do for him since she has been so gracious, or I'm sorry, what, yeah, what he could do for her since she has been so gracious in providing food and lodging for him. Now, notice how Elisha frames the questions. What is to be done for you, he says? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? Now, remember, Elisha has connections. He was the one who saved the army of Israel uh, when they went to war against Moab in 2 Kings chapter 3 by providing water in the wilderness for the army. Elisha knows the army commanders. He knows people in the royal household. If this woman desired preferment for her husband, he could talk to someone about getting him uh, an, even a better job, perhaps. Maybe uh, moving to a better location. Does she want to get out of the little village of Shunem and live in Samaria, the capital? That could probably be arranged. The Shunammite woman, though, is not interested in any of these things. But she doesn't simply say, no thank you, and move on. Scripture actually gives us her reason for declining Elisha's offer. And it's a striking statement. She says, I dwell among my own people. Now, I'm not suggesting that this statement is the main point of the text by any means. 
But it is interesting that we get not only the fact that this woman is content with her life, but we get the reason why she is content in her answer to Elisha. The Shunammite woman desires to dwell among her own people, her family, her tribe. She wants to live in a place that she calls home. She does not desire to move up in rank or move to the capital. Commentator Matthew Henry put it this way, It is a happiness to dwell among our own people that love and respect us and to whom we are in a capacity of doing good and a greater happiness to be content to do so, to be easy and to know that we are well off. Why should those that live comfortably among their own people covet to live delicately in king's palaces? It would be well with many if they did but know when they were well off. End quote. In an age of restlessness like ours, where multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism are foisted upon us as values that good citizens must embrace, where social mobility and globalism are deemed to be natural and unavoidable, we can see that scripture presents us with a virtuous character like this Shunammite woman who is content due to the natural affection she has for her home and her people. This is not to suggest the contrary. This is not to suggest that she would have been sinning if she took up Elisha's offer. She was perfectly within her right to do that. The point, though, is that Scripture gives us a realistic anthropology. Throughout Scripture, we see characters with deep connection to their lands and their families, and that's not a bad thing. Even the Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentiles though he was, said that he wished himself accursed if it meant the salvation of his kinsmen, according to the flesh. For his kinsmen, those related to him, he wished himself accursed if only they could receive salvation. Though he was willing to go to the Gentiles, he longed for the salvation of his people, his kinsmen, his family, his tribe. Yet, if this statement by the Shunammite woman seems to run up against politically correct assumptions of our day, just look at the next exchange, which I just find fascinating. Elisha asks Gehazi again what he can do for this woman since she rejected his offer. And Gehazi responds... Well, she does not have a son, and her husband is old. And to that, Elisha says, that's it. She shall have a baby. Now, just imagine how much trouble he would get in today for this clearly politically incorrect statement. You can just hear it. Maybe she doesn't want a baby. You ever think of that, Elisha? Maybe she wants to be independent and enjoy her life. She's a strong, wealthy, independent woman after all. 
She doesn't need to be weighed down by the burden and responsibility of children. Why and how dare you assume this, Elisha, without asking her? Why would Elisha and Gehazi assume such a thing? Because it is natural for a woman to desire children. As much as our culture wants to treat the bearing and raising of children as a kind of alternative lifestyle and condescendingly speak of it as a demeaning task for a woman, it is a perfectly good and normal and high calling of women to do such a thing. And again, while this is not the primary point of this passage, we do need to see the assumptions and implications of the words spoken by the characters in the story and recognize how foreign the world they inhabit seems to our own. And at least ask ourselves, are they crazy or are we? Continuing on, uh, Elisha tells the woman that about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Notice her response to this news. It betrays a heart that has been broken in the past by disappointment. Perhaps she has suffered through miscarriages and the inability to bring a baby to term. She says, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. She cannot bear to face such disappointment again. She's older now and has likely closed the door on the possibility of having a child. She's grieved over it and now has stoically resigned herself to that reality. Elisha prophesying that she will have a child within a year's time would potentially reopen old wounds through another round of failed hopes and expectations. However, verse 17 tells us, the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said. Once again, scripture presents us with a barren, older woman miraculously having a child. This seems to be a favorite plot twist of God that is repeated throughout scripture. If you faithfully read your Old Testament, by the time you come to the New Testament and read Luke's account of the birth of John the Baptist, it's not completely unexpected that God would give Zechariah and Elizabeth a child in their old age. And a priest like Zechariah should have known that this was not only something God could do, but it's something that God had done many times in the past. There's also a connection in this story that reaches back to Abraham and Sarah. Obviously, they also were promised a child in their old age. But in Genesis 18, it's when Abraham sees three men walking by and insists that they stay while he serves them a meal and shows hospitality in providing for them. It's on this occasion 
that it is revealed to him that Sarah will now be pregnant and have a son. And, of course, Sarah laughs when she hears that news. It's after this gracious display of hospitality to angels, being entertained unaware, and even the angel of the Lord himself, that it's the occasion for the fulfillment of the promise. Now, it was not Abraham's service, nor the Shunammite woman's service, that changed God's mind or manipulated God into granting them their heart's desire. God, in his sovereignty, had ordained these events. And in Abraham's case, we know, had promised that this day would come eventually, and did so repeatedly. But the service of these two individuals provided the occasion that God would use to bless them. Likewise, God does not show favor to us today because of our good works. However, our good works may provide the occasion for God's blessing when we obey him. In other words, we do not perform good works so that God will grant us our desires. But, as Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, we have been raised to new life by grace through faith, and our good works are prepared in advance by God for us to do. In our text, life is offered by God in the form of a child as the reward of gracious service performed by the Shunammite woman. Lastly, let's consider death as the backdrop for joyful resurrection. In verse 18 of our text, we see several years pass in the middle of this story. The child is no longer a baby, but is at least old enough to go out into the fields with his father. And while out in the field one day, he begins to feel pain in his head and says, Oh, my head, my head. The boy likely suffered from sunstroke. The boy is carried to his mother, and while on her lap, he dies. The text does not use a euphemism here, like falling asleep, nor does it indicate that he merely passed out. He died. The woman takes her son up to Elisha's apartment and lays him on Elisha's bed. And then tells her husband that she must go with a servant to hunt down Elisha that very day. When her husband asks if it's really necessary for her to go today, she tells him, all is well. In Hebrew, the word there for that phrase, all is well, is simply shalom, which means peace. Outwardly, the woman is showing composure and assuring her husband she is at peace. But she must see Elisha immediately. She urges her donkey onward and tells her servant, do not slow the pace. She is in a hurry. Why is she in a hurry? The child is dead after all. 
It's not like he is, uh, she needs to make haste before the child dies that maybe Elisha can do something. The child has passed. So what is the rush? She doesn't know what Elisha can do, if Elisha can resurrect him back to life or not. But she must speak with the man of God. She needs answers. And she can't understand why God would give her a child just to take him away from her. In verse 26, Elisha sees her coming while a long way off. And he urges his servant Gehazi to run at once and meet her. And when Gehazi asks her if all is well, she repeats the word she spoke to her husband before she had left and says, Shalom. But underneath the mask of Shalom, Elisha sees that she is in bitter distress as she grabs hold of his foot in verse 27. Notice what she says then in verse 28 to Elisha. Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She never asked for a son. She never bargained with Elisha. There was never a quid pro quo here. When Elisha told her she would embrace a son within a year's time, she had told him not to say such a thing for fear of getting her hopes up. She needs answers here. Is God punishing her? Is this some kind of sick joke? Elisha doesn't have an answer either. He admits he has not received a word from the Lord to help him make sense of why God would take this woman's son. He doesn't even exactly know what to do. He sends Gehazi to go swiftly to Shunem to put Elisha's staff on the face of the child in order to maybe revive him. But the Shunammite woman refuses to leave Elisha's side. She knows it will do her no good for her to hurry back with Gehazi to her son. She's hoping that instead, by staying with this holy man of God, God will reveal answers to his prophet. Gehazi, we find, is unable to revive the boy using Elisha's staff. Elisha and the Shunammite woman uh, finally arrive. And when they do, Elisha shuts everyone out of the apartment and he prays. Now, we're not told that Elisha prayed before he multiplied the widow's oil that we talked about last time. Or when he healed Naaman in chapter 5. Or when he recovered the lost axe head. Or when he fed a hundred men with twenty loaves of barley. In all of these cases, he simply gave instructions and a miracle occurred. He knew the result in each of these cases before it actually happened. But in this case, he's praying. God had hidden this from him, he said, in verse 27. He doesn't know exactly what to do. 
This passage parallels the story in Matthew 17 when the disciples, remember, were asked to cast a demon out of a boy in Jesus' absence and they were unable to do so. Remember when Jesus showed up, he said, this kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. Jesus had come and cast the demon out as his disciples lacked the faith to do so. Here, Elisha sent his servant with a staff to resurrect this boy and to no avail. This miracle requires prayer. Elisha prays to God for direction, alone in this room with the boy. Then he lays on the boy and breathes on him. Also, notice how this miracle occurred. There wasn't a magic touch or a magic word. He did not say something or, or do something, and instantly the child revived and responded. Elisha instead had to persist in prayer, laying there and breathing on the boy. Gradually, the text says, Elisha felt the boy's flesh begin to warm until finally the boy revived and was restored to life, sneezing seven times. So what do we take from this last part of the story? We're not given any explanation as to why God would give this woman a son and then take him away again. But if we think, if we think about it, why does God give any of us life only to take it away again? James 4.14 says that our life is a vapor. Whether one lives seven years or 77 years, in the grand scheme of things, our lives are but vapors. We're alive on this earth for but a moment in time. Why does God create new life every day in his image and give us souls just to snatch life away again after what amounts to a mere instant in light of eternity? In this story, this boy's death and the pain and grief of loss that follow become the backdrop for a joyful resurrection. This tragedy became the stage on which God would display his power even to restore life to the dead and bring about a joyous reunion between mother and son. Consider the connection between uh, that we uh, considered earlier between this story and the story of Abraham and Sarah. God told Abraham to sacrifice that son that he had just been given, right? And for which he had waited so long. Abraham acted in faith to God's command, believing that even if he killed his son, Isaac, as he was told to do, God would restore him to life. The sacrifice that God called Abraham to make would only be the occasion for God to display his resurrection power. 
Abraham believed that. Abraham believed that God had the power over life and death. Likewise, God the Father gave his only begotten son to die on a cross. And in that humiliation and death, he displayed his resurrection power when on the third day Christ was raised from the dead. Our God is the God of the living and the dead. And for those who are in Christ, we will one day experience this resurrection and eternal life as well, though we die. Just as Christ died and rose to new life, those who are united to Christ can die and will be raised to new life. But the resurrection lies on the other side of death's dark, lonely door. Death provides the occasion from which we will arise to new life. The God of Abraham, the God of Elisha, the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for that reason, death is not final, but only the occasion by which we who are in Christ may be resurrected to new life. Are you in Christ? Have you been united to Christ's body? If you have believed in Jesus Christ and have been united to him in baptism, death is not final, but only a passage through which we pass to new life. And as the Shunammite woman said, all is well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not only our sovereign creator, but our sovereign redeemer. That though sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, that you have promised to defeat this final enemy and you have given us a taste of that in the resurrection of your son. And as your son rose, we also will rise one day. And though we lack the answers when we face tragedies in our lives. And we don't know why you would take some from us so young. We rest, Lord, in the fact that all of our lives are but vapors and that we have only a short time to serve you and an eternity to be with you. Lord, help us in our lives to Embrace this great hope of the resurrection and see death as only the occasion whereby we are risen to new life and not finally. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our reflective hymn is number 563 in your hymnal. It is well with my soul.